we're going to jump into uh, the book of Judges, okay? In the book of Judges. I want to go ahead and give you this whole sermon in one sentence, and that's this. Inconsistency will only ever bring calamity. That's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. Inconsistency will only ever bring calamity. And the title of the message this weekend is stay on top of it. Stay on top of it. Okay. So we're in the book of Judges. If you want to go ahead and begin turning there, that would be great. As a reminder, God called a man named Abraham to be the father of a people that he would one day turn into a nation. And he would use that nation to bring the light, to bring the truth, to bring salvation to all the other nations. But God told Abraham that part of the preparation for this people was for them to go through a difficult season. 400 years of slavery in a foreign land. But that that 400 years would end, God would send a deliverer to bring them out of that land, to bring them out of that yoke of slavery. And of course, we're talking about the Exodus story. God chooses a man named Moses to lead the Hebrews, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into a promised land, a place where they would have peace, a place where they would have plenty, plenty of everything. And then Moses leads the people out of the evil land of Egypt, but he had a hard time getting the evil land of Egypt out of the people. And they just couldn't grasp how good and how faithful God was. And so they kept disobeying him and walking in unbelief. This unbelief kept them from entering into the land that God had promised. They saw that there were giants. There were Nephilim in the land that God had promised. And they just felt hopeless. They're like, how could we ever take out these giants? How could we ever defeat these giants? And God's like, seriously? After all the supernatural miracles I have displayed while delivering you, you don't think I can take out some giants. And the Lord was upset with the people. And he made them wander in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation that walked in unbelief died out. Now, there were two men, Joshua and Caleb, that did believe God. They were, only, they were the only two of that generation that were able to enter into the promised land. Joshua was actually chosen to be Moses' successor. God chose Joshua. So Joshua is the one that leads the people into the land. Under Joshua's leadership, they began to take possession of the land. <laughs> you guys remember we talked about They took uh, the city of Jericho, and it was crazy. He gave this amazing pre-battle speech. You know it was great. Okay, so then we come to the book of Judges, which is full of stories. And those stories tell a bigger story about a not-so-good season of Israel's history. And before we get into all that, there's four things that I want you to know. So get your pen out and get ready to write some things down as we get into the book of Judges. First of all, Judges is our story. The book of Judges is our story, just like everything else we've read. We've been going through the Bible 
um, since the beginning of the year, Genesis, and we want to go all the way through as best as we can, giving an overview of things we've already heard, but we want to take it a little deeper. And just like these other books and characters and things like that, Judges teaches us about who we are and how important it is to put God first. Romans 15 says, whatever was written in earlier times, talking about the Old Testament, Whatever was written in earlier times was for our instruction so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope and overflow with confidence in his promises. First Corinthians 10 says almost the same thing, a little differently. Now, these things happened, talking about the things that happened in the Old Testament, as an example and a warning to us. They were written for our instruction. To admonish and equip us, the Amplified Version says. To admonish and equip us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And it's not just the the bad stuff that instructs us and encourages us and equips us. It's the good stuff too. Psalm 102 verse 18 says, Let this be recorded for future generations so that people not yet born will praise the Lord. So the hard stuff, the bad stuff, but also the good stuff, the miracles, all those things are meant to... Be an example and also a warning and sometimes an inspiration for us. The second thing I want you to know is that Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Okay, sometimes we we teach or preach or we think that it is. And I, I see how people would say that. But ultimately, this promised land, the land of Canaan, it's actually a picture of the promised life that we find in and through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 tells us that Canaan points to uh, the victory, the rest, the peace that can be enjoyed by every person who puts their faith in Jesus. Okay. The third thing I want you to know as we enter into the book of Judges is that the Canaanite culture was a threat to the promised life. Israel was coming into a land that was full of Uh, immorality and idolatry, every town that they come to would be filled with temptation. Every town. All the people were all about sex, money, and idol worship. The people of God would be surrounded by ungodliness. And that's why in Numbers chapter 33, the Lord told Moses, you must drive out all the inhabitants of the land, destroy all their carved images and idols and demolish all their high places, high places of worship. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, they will become thorns in your side. They will harass you in the land where you settle. And remember that um, a lot of these inhabitants of the lands were, were giants. We talked about this several weeks ago. They were Nephilim, the offspring of fallen angels who took wives for themselves. We talked about that a couple months ago in Genesis chapter 6. And this is why the land and the people of that land was so evil. And God said, drive them out. Because he knew that if Israel didn't drive them out, the Canaanite culture would corrupt them. The fourth thing I want you to know is that Joshua's uh, clarion call was for Israel to be faithful 
to God's commands. He was all about, be faithful, be faithful. It was always his clarion call the whole time. But in Joshua chapter 24, and I want you to turn there, okay, because I'm going to read a portion of it, and I want you to read along with me. Joshua chapter 24. Go ahead and turn there. That's when we hear the pages turning. There it is. I appreciate you over there, Katie. In Joshua chapter 4, Joshua shouts louder and clearer than ever before. It starts out like this. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned all the major leaders, and they came and presented themselves before God. Now, you need to understand, at this point, Joshua is on his last leg of life. Okay? This is, this is like his fat, uh, final farewell. This is his last pep talk. Okay? This is going to be his final family powwow. You guys do family powwows at your house, right? Everybody know what a fam- family powwow is? Things are crazy. Things are chaotic. Mom's tired of it. She says, everybody on the couch. <laughs> he lines everybody up on the couch, and she gets to the bottom of whatever's going on. Who sinned? One of you sinned. I know somebody's sinning around here. And she starts slapping the kids. You have to say, honey, stop. We're going to get arrested. I'm just kidding. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Unless it does in your house. A family powwow. That's what we do. Somebody last night said, we call those come to, come to Jesus's. So whatever you call it, family powwow, come to Jesus. It's those moments where you get everybody together and you try to get alignment back into your home. Um, peace from the chaos, right? So this is a family powwow. This is, one of, this is his last one, really. In verses 2 through 13, Joshua, speaking for the Lord himself, gives an overview of their history. God says, I have fulfilled my promises to Abraham. I delivered you from Egypt. I destroyed the Amorites when they came against you out in the wilderness. I made a donkey talk. He's like, I did some pretty cool stuff, people. You guys remember Balaam's donkey, right? Here's the story, right? He says, I've helped you take out the giants in the land. Some of the giants, they weren't done yet, but I've helped you take out some of the giants in the land. And then in verse 13, if you're there with me in Joshua 24, He says, I've given you a land in which you did not toil, cities that you did not build, and now you live in them, and you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, therefore, because of this, because I'm amazing, I'm good, and I have taken care of you just like I promised I would, therefore, you fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Cast aside the gods your father served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it is unpleasing in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served beyond the Euphrates or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And Josh was like, does everybody on this couch hear me? I ain't playing no games. We go serve the Lord in this house. <laughs> but I love the people's response. To me, I read what they say, and I'm like, it's humorous to me. It's not, but it is. The people replied, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. For the Lord our God brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, 
and perform these great signs before your eyes. I mean, they're just churching it up. You know what I'm saying? He also protected us throughout our journey and among all the nations which we have traveled. And the Lord drove out before us the nations, including the Amorites. And the reason they say including the Amorites, notice how it's always the Amorites. We took care of the Amorites. We saw the Amorites demolished. The Amorites, God said, I took out the Amorites for you. It's because the Amorites were giants. It was something to boast about. God did that thing, right? You come up against a 9-foot, 10-foot, 13-foot giant, you'd be glad God's on your side too, right? They said, the Lord drove out from us all the nations, including the giants who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. This is what they're saying. And Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God, and he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and consume you, even after he's been good to you. Never, said the people. (laughs) We will serve the Lord. Then Joshua told them, you're witnesses against yourself. You hear what you're saying. We all hear. You're witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses. And Joshua says, therefore, get rid of the foreign gods among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, we will, we will, we will serve the Lord, our God, and obey his voice. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he established for them a statute and ordinance. Joshua recorded these things in a book of the law of God. And then he took a large stone, set it up under the oak tree that was near the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you see this stone? It will be a witness against you. For it has heard all the words the Lord has spoken to us. And it will be a witness against you if you ever deny your God. Okay, so after the powwow, Joshua does just what mama does. She writes all the rules down and she puts us up on the refrigerator with a magnet. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, this is what we talked about. I'm putting it on the refrigerator. Every time you walk by, you better check it and check yourself. That's what Joshua was saying. And what does that refrigerator reminder say? It says, if you'll go for God, it will all go well with you. But inconsistency will always bring calamity. And then Joshua sent the people away, each to their own inheritance. Sometime later, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And this is where the book of Judges picks up. And again, the book of Judges is full of stories that tell a bigger story, okay? So let's watch this video for an overview of the bigger story. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, 
the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who helped the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story 
It shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders, and so work with them he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah, who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. You know, one of the things that stands out to me in this video is the statement, the Israelites became no different than the Canaanites. And I hope you noticed why this happened. Because Israel failed to drive out the remaining Canaanites. The whole point of driving out the inhabitants of the land was to avoid the moral or immoral corruption. And their way of worshiping their gods through, by the way, Child sacrifice. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, they decide to try and get along with these people. Well, maybe we can coexist with them. Maybe we can coexist 
with the Canaanites. Maybe we could use them. Maybe we can make them our slaves. We can get them to cut our grass and do our plumbing for us. How many of you know you cannot make a slave out of evil? Evil will make a slave out of you. That's why we're told, do not be slaves to sin any longer. If anything, be slaves to righteousness. This whole thing, trying to coexist with the Canaanite culture, throws them into a cycle. A pattern that is repeated over and over and over again. And this is how we know that this story is our story. Remember what we read? These things happen to them as an example and a warning to us. Listen, our culture is no different than the Canaanite culture of that time. Our land is full of moral corruption. It's all around us. Do you agree? We use sex to sell just about everything. I don't know if you knew this, but pornography is by far the highest grossing industry in the world. And that moral corruption, one way or the other, it goes all the way to the top. And we're going to find out more and more and more about that, I'm sure. Moral corruption, idol worship, I'm not talking about carving little wooden figures and bowing down and worshiping them, unless you do that. If you do, that's weird. Stop it. On all kinds of levels, just stop. I'm talking about in the form of money, our stuff, our possessions. I'm talking about our desire for fame. And popularity. One of the shows that we like to watch in our house is American Idol. We just we're full of musicians in our house, and so we like to see the um, the talented people. And then, of course, you run into the not so talented people, and it's it's an it's a very entertaining show. But when the contestants come in to audition in front of the judges, the judges will say, "Well, what brings you here today?" And what is their answer? I want to be the next American Idol. I mean, this is where our culture, I get it's just a show and that's just the title of the show, but, but that is exactly where we're at. We want to be American idols. Like me on this platform. Hit that like button on that platform. Hit that like button. Hit that like button. It's like, all right, can't you just do your video? We'll like it if we like it. Don't tell me to like it. But we just got to have people liking it because that's where the condition of our soul is. We need Every kind of affirmation that we can possibly get. And don't even get me started on child sacrifice. Abortion alone is proof of this. Amen. But not just abortion. Even the way that we are surrendering our kids to the culture. And we are. And we have been for a long time. When we complain about the condition of our culture and how things are getting weird and weird and weirder by the day, it's because some time ago we started surrendering our kids to the culture. And those kids have grown up and they're shifting the culture of this world to look more and more and more like the land of Canaan in the time of the judges. Just like Israel, 
we are surrounded by ungodliness. And just like Israel, God says these ungodly things got to go. Drive it out of your life. Paul's kind of talking in this realm in his letter to um, Colossae. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, Therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, strive for the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, the components of your earthly nature. And he's so good to give us some examples, starting with sexual immorality, impurity, lust. He starts with sexual immorality. Evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. When you lived among them, you used to also walk in these ways. Listen to what he just said. You used to be a part of that world. You used to be all about that culture. That's who you were. But now your life is hidden in Christ. You used to walk in these ways, but now, because of who you are, you must put all these things aside. We're not in Egypt anymore. Amen, saints? It's not who we are anymore. We may have, we may have to live in this world but God commands us to not be of this world. And we know this. We preach this. We talk about this all the time. But we forget. God said, drive that stuff out of our lives. If it is toxic, it's got to go. If it has the potential to corrupt us, I need to drive that out. I need to get it out. Because, listen to what, listen to what 2 Peter chapter 2 says. This is Peter. And he says, when people escape from the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when people that come to Jesus escape the corruption of the world and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. And that's exactly what happened to Israel in the time of the judges. Even after they swore, far be it from us to forsake the Lord, we will serve the Lord and we will obey him. <laughs> And they did. They did obey the Lord. For a little while. Until they decided to coexist with the Canaanite culture. And that led them to sinning against God. And that's exactly what we do. We try to coexist with this evil culture. We think, I can use this. I can use this. I can turn this thing around. I can take this evil thing and, 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 and work it for good. I can redeem this. The thing is, God didn't tell us to redeem evil stuff. He told us to drive it out. Isn't that right? And you, you guys know as well as I do that every time we try to coexist with evil, we fall into sin. And life becomes miserable. We regress and become depressed because we are now oppressed. And it's amazing just how long our pride will keep us in that state of calamity. 
Am I the only one? Am I the only, pri- am I the only prideful person that will just stay there? Because I won't admit I did something wrong or that I was off the mark. No, we're all that way. But eventually, what do we do? What do we do? We cry out to God. Lord, help me. Please. I won't do it again. How many times do we say, I won't do it again if you'll just forgive me, Lord. Make it right. I'll be right. I'll do right. Just forgive me. Right? We all know that one. And of course, the Lord is faithful to forgive us. He does help us. One way or another, the Lord delivers us. If you were here last week, Pastor Marvin spoke. He was talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is our helper. And the title of his message, his sermons, everything was all about this. He is for you. And God is for us. He's not against us. And so he is faithful, true to his word. The Prince of Peace does what the Prince of Peace does. Romans 15 says he fills you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we go back to experiencing the promised life. We're full of peace again. We're full of joy again. We're resting in the Lord. We're victorious. We're back in church again. We're faithful to our small group again. We got our kids coming to youth group again. Sending our kids to VBS. We got all the stuff going. We even share our story because we hope that our story, what we just went through, will help other people. So here's my testimony. We're back in the game. And then what's the pattern? At some point, something from the world catches our eyes and makes its way into our heart. And instead of recognizing it as something that's going to bring corruption into our life and driving it out as soon as we can, we let it in. And it starts this process all over again. We just repeat the pattern. We forget that coexisting with the Canaanite culture is only going to lead to calamity. We forget, like it says in Second Peter, that when we walk away from the world, but then we get tangled up again, we get tangled back up into that sin and enslaved by it again, we end up worse off than we ever were before. And it is. It's always worse than it was before. Just like it was in the book of Judges. You want to know how I know it's always worse than before? Because I have lived it personally. And because I counsel it constantly. When people find themselves in that oppressed state of the cycle, that's when they come to me. Pastor Tony, uh, um, man, I'm going through this again. We're going through this again. Oh, and you know what? You know what I tell them? The same thing I'm telling you this morning. You gotta be consistent. You've got to be consistent. Inconsistency will only ever bring calamity. You've got to stay on top of it. Amen. Amen. You know that you don't have to repeat this pattern, right? Right? Anybody familiar with this quote? (laughs) Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. 
So here's what I want to do as quickly as I can. I want to show you how to stop the sin cycle of insanity. How to stop the sin cycle of insanity. Number one, recognize unrighteousness. Recognize unrighteousness. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, keep watch and pray. Open your eyes and stay prayerful. Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If anybody knows this, it's Jesus. He's been watching humanity for a long time. He says, I know you, I know you said you'd do it. I know you said you'd be good. Your spirit is willing, just like Israel in the days of the judges. But here's what I've learned after watching you people for so long. Your flesh is weak. So you've got to stay watchful and pray. You've got to be able to see when unrighteousness is coming at you and say, whoa, that ain't good. That's not good. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. This is a prayer that we could wake up every morning and pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like you can stop the cycle just by recognizing that something is unrighteousness. And call it what it is. That is sin. I'm going to stay away from it. Which leads me to number two. Refuse unrighteousness. Refuse it. It shows it's an ugly head. It's going to. It always will. We'll always be tempted. All of us will be. But you've got to refuse it. Second Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Flee youthful lust. Now listen, that doesn't mean, well, I'm older, and so I don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. Listen, they call them youthful lusts because this is what you struggle with since you was a youth. You've had these passions in you since you were a young man. Some people fulfill those passions so much that they become habitual. That you become wrapped up and entangled with it. That's why he says, these youthful lusts. It doesn't matter if you're old. If you're older and more mature, you should be over this stuff. But the truth is, sometimes we're not. You see, calls them what they are. They're things that you've struggled with since you were a kid, but you have got to flee these youthful lusts, these youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with everybody else who's on the same journey, is what it says. Surround yourself with people who are also trying to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. First John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Look what it says. For all that is in the world, all that is in the Canaanite culture is the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All this is not from the Father, but from the world. I know I've said it, but let me say it again. It is impossible to coexist with these cultural cravings without bringing calamity upon your life, one way or the other. The third thing is repent of unrighteousness. The reality is that sometimes stuff creeps in. Sometimes stuff gets by. We didn't recognize the unrighteousness, and we certainly didn't refuse it. But at least we're like, oh man, when that Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of that sin, as soon as he does, repent. As soon as you recognize, oh my goodness, I have failed, repent. As soon as you can, repent of that righteousness. 1 John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. That's the goal. Recognize unrighteousness and refuse it. That's the goal. Do not sin. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? 
Is it the goal? Are you here this morning? Isn't that the goal, not to sin? It is totally the goal, but sometimes sin gets through. And he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then in 1 John 1, earlier in that book, he says, if we say we have no sin, we are dumb. We are stupid. We are idiots. It doesn't say it that way. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. To say, oh, I don't ever sin. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much perfect. Unless you Jesus, you ain't perfect. True? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Recognize unrighteousness. Refuse unrighteousness. If something gets through, okay. Jesus made a way. Repent. Recognize that he will forgive you. He's faithful and just to do that. But let me give you this fourth one. And it's equally as hard as the other three. And that is remove the temptation. Listen to me, saints. This could break the sin cycle of insanity. This could break the sin cycle of insanity in your life. If you will just remove the temptation. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut that thing off. Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. It makes sense. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. (laughs) Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life or eternal life or heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Remove the temptation. Are y'all hearing me this morning? I hope this is helpful. Remove the temptation. If there is an item that continually brings temptation in your life, remove it. Whatever that item is. If it is an activity, every time involved in this activity, I just end up back in the dump. Well, then don't get involved in that activity. Stop doing that thing. Whatever it is, whatever the activity is, don't do it. Remove that activity. Sometimes you have to remove a friend. If it's a non-Christian friend, certainly. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What that doesn't mean is you can't have friends that aren't Christians. That's not what that's saying. It's saying you can't have a yoke upon you that forces you to go in the same direction. You're lost friends. You don't go in that direction. You can have your friends, say hi to them and, and associate with them in a way that is appropriate and with the right kind of biblical boundaries, but you don't yoke yourself to them because if you do, you're going to go in the same direction they are. So don't be yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership can righteousness have with wickedness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? You got to be careful how you associate with your non-Christian friends. Listen to me, though. (laughs) You have to be careful how you associate with your Christian friends. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You really do. In, um, In 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about this. He says, we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from any brother who leads an undisciplined life that is not keeping with the tradition you received from us. Even Christian friends, we've got to be careful. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Anybody found that to be true? 
I love this. Do not be deceived. Don't tell yourself, no, I'm stronger than that. I can be an influence. I can redeem this. Listen, try to redeem it. Try to be a witness. Try to be a light. But you need to be careful. Otherwise, you will be corrupted. How many times have we seen it? Over and over and over. A lot of times that slipping back into that old way of life comes from the friends we hang around. It's just the truth. I'm going to ask my wife to come up and just close us in prayer. While she's coming up, let me just say this. None of us are ever going to do any of this perfectly. We're not. I'm not perfect in this. There are plenty of times where I didn't recognize the unrighteousness. I didn't refuse it. I let it in. I have learned how to repent as soon as the Holy Spirit convicts me. So it's not about being perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but we can be consistent. Isn't that right, saints? Awesome. I want to invite you guys to stand. We just, you know, Tony and I, after this week, we were at camp and just watching the presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord and His Holy Spirit operating in our lives and in the kids' lives. Friday morning, we were up early, water in the yard. It was 100 degrees outside and had our coffee passionately talking about this specific message for you guys and recognizing how much we need the Spirit of God to bring His conviction um, to teach us. And I'm so moved by this passage in Second Peter. He read out of chapter 2 a little bit ago. Oh, Kenan, would you come up and do some ministry music? Because it's so good. Come on up, bud. Second Peter 1. He says, His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Aren't you guys grateful for that this morning, that his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness? So when we hear a message like this and we're in Christ, aren't you grateful that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because this Holy Spirit's given us the things that we need for life and for godliness to live our lives worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ Jesus. But the reality is, is that we have to have the Holy Spirit convicting us of these places where we have... Um, maybe in our busy schedules, which is probably one of the most common, most normal times in our life. It's the busyness, and we let things slip, and we let things get through. We get a little lazy because we've put a lot of attention towards one area, and then we start to recognize these things that we had held a standard for for a long time. We just sort of let the standard drop, maybe in our personal conviction and our personal standards, maybe in the standards of our home, things that we said we would never let get through. We let it get through. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to illuminate, to examine, to investigate those places. And we want to respond to a message like this because we are living in really, really dark days, aren't we? Really, really dark days. I was just... a. My, my social media platforms will fill up with a lot of conservative news and like um, kind of watchdog type stuff. And I was just appalled this last week in Dallas. I mean, what is that, 90 miles away? They had this whole transgender parade. And these parents brought, bought tickets for their kids and they had them sitting and watching a drag show. I don't know if you've seen that, but I've I've been so disturbed by it. Little kids watching a drag show, drag queens dancing back and forth. 
and the things that were written up on the wall and the stuff that these kids were being exposed to. I thought, man, what is happening? God, forgive us that we would surrender our children to that. And maybe you're not. Maybe that you're like, no, that's gross. But how has the influence and the culture of the world gotten into your home, gotten into your personal life, gotten into the way that you've said, hey, this is how we said we were going to live. It finds a way in. And we need the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and remind us and help us break free of those things. To repent. To repent just means turn directly away from it. It's a 180 from it. It's like I was headed this way and I'm going this way. But the Lord's promised us the Holy Spirit. His divine power has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. It goes on to say, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's what we've been given by his great and precious promises. We do not have to be subject to the darkness. We can escape the corruption of this world. Aren't you glad for that? That's good news, my friends. We can escape this. We don't have to be a part of the. We can be completely counterculture. We can be in this world. We can make an impact in this world by having the light inside of us. But we are set apart. We are in it, not of it. And maybe this morning the Lord's needing to remind you individually, as a family unit maybe. And what have you allowed in your home and in your heart that's looking suspiciously like Canaan? suspiciously like the world. I read a quote recently that says, a passion can only be driven out by a greater passion. And so we want to remove these things, and he tells us to remove them. But the greatest way to remove them is to replace them with a greater passion. And that is the righteousness of Jesus. That we can drive these things out of our life by the power and the, and the authority of Jesus' name, but they really need to be replaced you don't just drive them out. They need to be replaced with a greater passion. And you know what Peter goes on to say right here? For this very reason, for the very reason that God has given you a way out, a way out of escaping the corruption of the world. For this very reason, because of his precious promises and because you have the divine power of God, you get to participate in his nature. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. It's not just driving out the wickedness, it's replacing it and being passionate about the things that God has given us to be passionate about. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a promise. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. That is a promise of the Lord that you can stand upon. Adding to our faith, if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, so I will always remind you of these things. 
And that's what we're in the house for, right? To be reminded. Most of us, this isn't the first time we've heard that, but our spirits need to be reminded. We're reminded in worship that we need to call upon the name of Jesus and declare him over every circumstance. But we're reminded through studying judges here that we got to stay on top of these things that the enemy is using in really seductive and subtle ways very often to destroy our homes. But we can stand against it. Amen. We do not. We are not victims of this culture. We are victors. We are overcomers in Christ. So Holy Spirit, I'm just asking right now that you come and do what you're so faithful to do. And that's convict us. And thank you, Spirit, that when you bring conviction, it is it is never with condemnation. It is always with hope and encouragement and a challenge that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't have to settle. We are not casualties of this culture. We are not victims of what's being thrown at us. We are more than conquerors in Jesus. And anyone in the house, any family, any individual that has felt beaten down by the culture, Lord, would you be in your kindness and in your mercy, would you reveal to us the ways that we thought we could coexist, but it has beaten us. We thought that we could coexist with evil and somehow tolerate it, but it's gotten the upper hand in our lives. And we thought somehow we could give a little bit of the world to our kids, but it is eating them whole. Would you reveal that to us right now? We're going to ask Holy Spirit, would you lead us into all truth? We don't always tell ourselves the truth, but you do. What is true about our homes? What is true about our private lives? That we've said we thought we could conquer this, but it has been conquering us. Show us the areas that we need to shut the door on the enemy and the ways that we have let him infiltrate our family lives, that we've let him infiltrate our children's minds. Give us the courage and the grace to shut the door on that, to remove that wickedness from our home. Cleanse us, Lord. Thank you that you're faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord. So we want to receive that right now, that we get a fresh start right here in the house, that you can cleanse us, that you make us right. And these areas that maybe we have been confessing to you and acknowledging and admitting to you, that we let unrighteousness rule, Lord, thank you that you're going to lead us. You're going to lead us out and you're going to lead us into freedom in Jesus' name. That we don't have to be stuck and held captive by that sin and by those cultural norms. We're part of your kingdom. We're part of your righteousness, Lord. And we thank you that we are children of the light right now in the house. Would you thank him that you're children of the light? Thank him. We are children of the light and we will walk in the light. That we will not have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness or be entertained by them. That we will be set apart holy and righteous before you, Lord. We're a part of your kingdom, your authority, Jesus, and we want to be kids that act like it. Thank you that you have made a way and that no temptation has seized us, that you have not given us a way of escape. Give everyone eyes to see that this week and in the days to come. When the temptation comes over them, that you've given them a way of escape and that they will act upon it in Jesus' name. Holy, pleasing lives before you, Lord. That's what we want. That is our desire. 
And if it's not a strong desire for someone in the house, Lord, we just, we just pray that you would help them by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would desire to live holy and righteous lives before you. And that we can call upon the name of Jesus for help. That you're for us and not against us. That we have a hope and future in you. So Lord, we declare this day that we will serve the Lord. That our houses will serve the Lord. We will serve you, Jesus. We want to be passionate followers of you. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you help us in our time of need. 